So this summer, I've had something stuck in my head. It's this old church saying, an old idiom about faith, and it's been on repeat in my brain all summer. It's uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And y'all know me, I, I think, well, I'd rather focus on the first part. I'd rather comfort the afflicted. But this week, I felt pulled by the Spirit to disrupt my own comfort, much to my chagrin. Psalm 139, which the choir just sang beautifully, very nice, uh, that's my favorite scripture. And I felt pulled away from it for some reason. And I wanted to try to challenge myself and do something a little bit tougher for me. And tough scriptures give me anxiety, but I know that this is a place that can handle tough scriptures. Today's historically toned-down gospel reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Hear the word of God. Our ears are open. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl Jesus off the cliff. But he passed through them, he passed through the midst of them, and went on his way. The word of the Lord. Chapter 4 is pretty early in Luke, so we haven't gotten much of adult Jesus yet. 
at the beginning of the passage, he is in Galilee, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that had descended upon him during his baptism in chapter 3. Jesus is becoming a really popular and respected teacher in his area. By verse 16, we find him in Nazareth, where he had been raised. Nazareth is the place of Jesus' childhood. Roots are here, relationships are here. They know Jesus from when he was a wee in, when he was a wee lad, when he was in his awkward years. And look at him now. He's an acclaimed teacher. He's doing well for himself. And he has a beard. Wow. And he's here with them today in the synagogue, and he's going to read from the scroll. How wonderful. How nice. When Jesus unrolls the scroll, I really like to do that, uh, that motion. He reads from Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, and Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 through 2. You see, this is when Jesus is basically giving what Ernest Hess would call Christ's purpose or Christ's mission statement. But more on that in a minute. For now, let's just acknowledge that Jesus has given his mission statement and embodies its fulfillment. The people of his hometown eat this up. They are amazed at Jesus' gracious words and spoke well of him. The congregation is pleased. When they ask, hey, isn't this Joseph's kid? They aren't being jerks about it. They are in awe of Jesus. But then we hit the moment where our scripture takes a turn. When things get a little weird. We know Jesus to be comforting. But in this passage, Jesus does not seem to care about the comfort of the congregation at all. In fact, to me, dare I say it, it feels like Jesus is being kind of presumptuous and honestly antagonistic. I mean, what's he talking about? First, he says that they are definitely going to quote the proverb, doctor, cure yourself at him. Why does Jesus say this? He isn't sick. He isn't ill. Maybe Jesus is trying to be preemptive. As Gay L. Byron puts it, the saying may be a way of anticipating that Jesus should deal with his own shortcomings before attempting to speak of the shortcomings of others. Does Jesus think his hometown is going to attack him with his shortcomings? Does Jesus have shortcomings? Then Jesus antagonizes them again. And another thing, and I know another thing you're going to say. You're going to mention things that I did in Capernaum. And then you're going to tell me to do those same things here in my hometown of Nazareth. Again, this is confusing. Because at this point, Jesus hasn't even been to Capernaum yet. Or at least not that Luke has recorded. So we don't know what Jesus has done in Capernaum. So we can't be entirely sure what he's talking about. Jesus heads to Capernaum in verse 31 after he passes through the congregation at the end of the passage. Then Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. And let's stop there for a second. If you are in the congregation listening to Jesus, how are you feeling? At this point, if I was in the congregation, I think I'd be like, okay... Now you're bringing up hometowns? Like, where are you going with this, Jesus? Is there a way you can say what you need to say without being so hardcore? You're making me uncomfortable. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus brings up the prophets Elijah and Elisha from 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Jesus brings up specific moments in their ministries when these prophets, when these prophets helped Gentiles, not Jewish people. As the New Oxford Annotated Bible puts it, these moments illustrate that foreigners sometimes received God's aid when Israel did not. Well, now he's done. The synagogue is filled with utter rage. Jesus went from having a hometown congregation of affirming head nods and smiles and awe to discomfort and people kind of shifting in their seats to pure, unadulterated, dangerous rage. Imagine this. What did the congregation say to him as they rose from their seats? When did they start yelling and getting belligerent? Were they running and chasing after Jesus, or was it kind of a slow, intimidating walk to the brow of the hill? When they gathered around Jesus Christ to throw him off the cliff, were they cracking their necks and their knuckles? Were they like, I hope Jesus' family, who we know pretty well, don't get mad? And then Jesus just passes through them. How? Did he use divine power? Is he quick on his feet? Did he stack himself on top of someone else, throw on a hat and a giant trench coat, disguise his voice, point in a random direction and yell to the crowd, quick, he went that way. Who knows? Jesus is mysterious. But wait, I started talking about the anger and then I forgot to explore what the congregation is actually mad about. The congregation isn't mad at Gentiles receiving support. The congregation is mad at Jesus, because as the Jewish annotated New Testament states, he is withholding his powers from them. There are a lot of things that surprise me about this passage, but the biggest surprise to me is the timing of the congregation's anger. And let me explain why. Let's go back to verse 16, when Jesus is unrolling the scroll and essentially sharing his mission statement. As I said earlier, he reads from Isaiah 58, 6, and, and 61, verses 1 through 2. And I'm going to read that passage to you now so we can explore it together. This is from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to release the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. It's important to know that when Jesus is reading from the scroll, he leaves out that last part, and the day of vengeance of our God. But why does he leave it out? I agree with Ernest Hess's interpretation. Jesus was focused on bringing healing and justice, not vengeance. When quoting Isaiah, Jesus mentions the year of the Lord's favor. So what is that? What is the year of the Lord's flavor? Or favor? <laughs> I certainly needed a refresher myself. The New Oxford Annotated Bible had this to say about it. The year of the Jubilee, also known as the year of the Lord's favor, was to be observed every 50th year as a means to forgive debt and to return land and property to its ancestral owners. 
Also during that jubilee, slaves are freed. Along with the year of the Lord's favor, what else did Jesus read from Isaiah that he is bringing bringing into fulfillment? Talk with my hands, y'all. Well, he talked about letting the oppressed go free, as well as release to prisoners and proclaiming release to captives of war. He also talked about bringing good news to people in poverty. And it is here where I will reiterate my surprise of the timing of the congregation's rage. I'm not trying to be, to be funny when I say this. My initial reaction was that I thought they would try to throw Jesus off the cliff a lot sooner. My initial thought was they would hear Jesus' mission statement and want to throw him off the cliff. And yet, the congregation isn't mad at Jesus' mission statement or it being fulfilled. At that point, they're amazed at his gracious words. They're speaking highly of him. At that point, they like his mission statement. Why am I surprised that they aren't challenged by it? I think it's because I'm challenged by it. I was wondering how the current church with a capital C would react upon hearing Jesus' mission statement. Because we would have to consider what Jesus' mission statement means for us as Christ's followers. When it comes down to it, sometimes I don't want to unpack what Jesus has to say. I like how bringing good news to the poor is vague. I can find comfort in the ambiguity. But we're trying to follow Christ, so we have to unpack it. Let's wrestle Jesus' mission statement together. The year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, is about liberation. Along with freeing slaves and returning land to its ancestral owners, it's also all about forgiving severe and crippling debt, which would shake entire economic systems. The year of the Lord's favor has echoes in our modern times of reparations and debt forgiveness, two methods that would bring people liberation. As I explored this passage, I learned that reparations are mentioned throughout the Bible as the just thing to do, especially in Exodus and Ezra. And we already know that debt is meant to be taken seriously. Every Sunday we pray that God forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we follow Jesus' mission statement, reparations and debt forgiveness are ways we can bring people liberation that Jesus seeks. I feel like normally when we as churches talk about prison, we talk about how visiting prisoners is important, which it is. And my gratitude goes out to you who participate in prison ministry and feel called in that. But it can feel sometimes like the buck kind of stops there in our conversations. But Jesus' mission is to let the oppressed go free and provide release to the prisoners. If we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in our time, how do we provide release to the imprisoned? Does it mean people of faith are called to engage in prison reform? Or maybe Jesus is being relative with his word choice of release and prisoners. Maybe only applied to the prisoners in his time and it's a moot to the prisoners of our modern day. Or would that be handpicking scripture that we don't want to engage with. 
I mentioned earlier that the scripture has historically been toned down, and I can see why. It's a tough one. It's controversial. In our landscape, it feels like any hot-button issue can make someone want to throw another person down a cliff, which is reason enough to not want to engage. The topics it can bring forth, like reparations or debt forgiveness and prison reform, are sometimes deemed by congregations to be too political for church. As if Jesus would never antagonize, challenge, or afflict us with an issue that impacts so many people. As if Jesus would never ask us to get out of our boats and out of our comfort zones. As if Jesus, who has been sent to proclaim release to the captives, never coincided with anything political. Why is something deemed too political for church? Do people think it will lead to endorsing a candidate from the pulpit? That it will lead to chastising a specific party from the pulpit? That it will lead to calling out specific lawmakers from the pulpit? I'm not interested in any of that. But in my experience, the phrase too political is used to shut down conversations in the church. It can be, it can be limiting and deter us from the places scripture brings us. The church should be a place where we, we are able to talk about anything together as a community of faith, even when it's hard. With the season of Westminster's 150th anniversary upon us, I've asked a couple of people what initially drew them to Westminster. The answers were pretty similar. They were drawn to the big tent nature of our church with its wide breadth of theology. They enjoyed having respectful conversations and discussion about scripture and big issues and how they correlate and being able to hear and engage with people who did not share their beliefs. When I first came to Nashville in 2013 and was wondering what church I should join, I asked what separated Westminster from other churches. One of the things they told me was that Westminster, even with its wide spectrum, can handle hard conversations. It's part of our history. Let's continue to live that out. Let's continue to not shy away from hard topics when scripture brings us there. Let's continue to not only be comforted by Jesus, but challenged by him as well. I want you to pull out your bulletins Go ahead. I'm watching all of you. <laughs> Grab a pencil. And I want you to write down this question. With what is left of summer, what is one way you will allow Jesus to challenge you? With what we have left of summer, what is one way you will allow Jesus to challenge you? And I'll end on a quote again from Gayle Byron, talking about the end of our passage. Jesus passed through this encounter providing a symbolic image of his prophetic teaching about transgressing boundaries. 
Let us do the same. Amen.